Today on Keep Classical Weird, we talk about a composer giant of the 20th century, and Dr. Taggart receives a mycelial sign. You almost look like you're bursting at the seams to say something about John Cage. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Something that I found out about John Cage that I, I felt a real connection with him over, it was the fact that he loves mushrooms or loved mushrooms. He was obsessed with hunting for mushrooms and just the biology of it. And not that I'm like that in that sense, but I have been eating a lot of mushrooms the last two weeks. I've been sauteing them and putting them on everything. So I think it was almost like a chance encounter, pun intended, that you asked me to talk about John Cage. Welcome, friends, to episode 28 of Keep Classical Weird. I am your host, Casey Bozell, and today we discuss composer John Cage. He was an American composer and lived from 1912 to 1992. He was a particularly innovative composer in many ways, but is best known for his compositions involving chance music. This means that the compositions are presented to the musicians in such a way that the performance will be profoundly different every time it's performed. He came to know the ancient Chinese divination text known as the Yi Jing, or Book of Chances, in the early 50s, and he used this text to influence his compositions for the remainder of his life. The Yi Jing seemed to embody the way John Cage both composed and lived his life, and the philosophy centers around completely random and chance events. John Cage stripped away the predictability element of classical music and turned it back to his audience, forcing us all to answer the question, is this still music? Dr. Sophia Taggart and I had a great conversation about his life and his works, so let's dive right in. So he liked mushrooms. This is just, this is just something you happened upon in your research. (laughs) Wow. Yes, he started like a society in New York when he was living there, like a We Love We Love Mushrooms Club. I mean, it was what? Yeah, that's amazing. And so he's yeah. he's somehow reaching to you through the just like Star Trek Discovery through the mycelial network. He is reaching out to you. <laughs> let's take a step back from the mushrooms for a second, and let's okay. Sure, sure, sure. Talk about, you know, just in general who he was as a musician and as a person. You know, he came to music somewhat late in his life and only started composing when he was in Europe in the 1930s, I believe. And for someone who wasn't super involved in music early on, he really just took to it and just went for it, which was something I admire quite a bit because I I think that, you know, often we get too obsessed with, oh, that person's been playing for years and I'm just starting. But I mean, if you look at John Cage, he just kind of found something he loved and really connected with and went for it. So, you know, he became one of the most influential composers of the 20th century. I mean, 
the trends that he set and the the ideas and philosophies that he put into his music really helped shape a lot of different genres and he invented several so i mean it's just i think he is one of those can do guys you know he's he does he did it all it sounds to me like you know researching him and and getting to know him and his love of mushrooms um <laughs> i feel that he really just did not put any barriers on him and i think that is also what he did with his music there there aren't a lot of barriers in his music i mean that's and that's really interesting cuz that's almost that's one of the goals that we have as musicians ourselves, almost, is just to go for something for the purity of it and for the love of it and not let ourselves be held back mm-hmm. by anything. And it seems like it seems like he kind of did that. I think it's something that you can see in his, not just in his music, but in his personality and like some of the descriptions he had of his own life. Um, you know, he left college because he took a class where he walked into the library and everyone was sitting there reading the same book and he thought that was ridiculous. And so he went and grabbed a different book and it was just a chance encounter book. And he's like, and I got an A, so I left, you know, (laughs) you know, he got the highest grade in the class or something. And, and so he, he kind of marched to the beat of his own drum. He broke down barriers in music that was kind of like already existing. And he also broke down barriers, like you said, in inventing, new music so like where do we start it's it's good to look at him in a chronological way i think that his individual life and the things that happened to him at certain time times in his life when he made a decision to go here it just kind of set him up for every single step within his career and to me he actually lived the concept of indeterminacy and even chance simultaneously like he wrote music with those two concepts in mind but he also lived that way and and so I think chronologically is a good way to start so in Europe he changes his focus towards music and immediately heads back to New York and studies with Henry Cowell like that's a chance encounter you know meeting Cowell in Europe and then suddenly ending up in New York and studying with him and then deciding randomly perhaps to move out to LA and study with Schoenberg. It's just, bam, this thing happened. And then, and all the while he's like experiencing his own style of composing and Schoenberg told him he needed to have a really big grasp on harmony. And Cage was like, I have no connection to harmony. That's not going to (laughs) work. Yeah, can you imagine you responding know, that someone way? As famous as Arnold, yes. to Arnold Schoenberg. <laughs> wow. No. I mean, to I, any, I can't imagine responding that way to any like teacher that I would have had either. If they brought up yeah. like, oh yeah, there's this is a basic tenet of what your education will be, and then you're like, mm, I'm not really feeling it. I'm not connecting with that. That's yeah, I know. You know, it's it's funny. I have. <laughs> students where I'll tell them that they need to really, you know, get articulation down. And I've had students respond with, I don't know about that. And I just think, whoa, but now I, I need to view it more as 
they're just channeling their inner John Cage. <laughs> With regards to like the history of Cage and his progression through his styles, that will eventually bring us to probably his most famous piece that everyone talks about, which is four minutes and 33 seconds. But up, leading up to that, you know, he moves up to the Seattle area. This is something that I didn't know because it's it's something that we don't talk about necessarily in music history. We talk about what John Cage did. We talk about his time in New York or his time studying with Arnold Schoenberg. And then we also talk about the stuff he did while he, he was in Seattle. But we don't ever say, oh, he was in Seattle as if that's an important part. But I think for the people here in the Northwest, that's a cool a cool thing. So like the concept of prepared piano for John Cage specifically came out of his time in Seattle teaching at the Cornish College of the Arts. Oh, that's where it came from. And as someone who grew up in the Northwest, went to college in the Northwest, no one told me that connection. Can we talk Mm -hmm. about prepared piano since that's where it came out of? Because it is wild. Yeah. So, okay, the reason why he came up with the prepared piano for his first pieces was because he needed to come up with music to accompany some choreography, some dance and stuff on stage. And the hall was too small to have a large ensemble. So he tried to make the piano sound like percussion, essentially. Ah. And so... That's why he put screws in the piano and uh, between various strings and and really um, walked through the different ways in which um, you would make this string sound different and this pitch sound different or put tacks in the, the hammers of the piano. So it creates a very percussive sound. As well, he he also started a percussion ensemble and toured up and down, you know, the West Coast and really kind of developed a name for himself that way. So he has this interesting um, connection to percussion and and that led to the prepared piano. And then if you think about it, you know, when we hear John Cage's music, he he often tried to explore different sounds and, you know, all these different instruments and trying to get different sounds out there and it's because he was so interested in just ambient noise and the different sounds that you could hear in everyday life Mm. so I like to think of one of his most important parts of his entire history came out of the northwest so then okay so he's so he's in the northwest he travels with his group uh what happens next he moves to Chicago for a little bit and then he moves back to New York this is where we see him really get involved with this concept of Indian philosophies and Zen Buddhism and what have you. So just the purpose of music suddenly starts taking on a different role, I think, hmm. for him. It might have been like that throughout his whole life, but 
it's at that point that he starts really expressing it a little differently. It's in New York after meeting Morton Feldman that he ends up kind of becoming associated with this New York school of composers. It includes several famous composers and, and what have you. And then that's by 1952, that's when we get to four minutes and 30, 33 seconds. Four, four minutes and 33 seconds is just that amount of time of allowing the sounds of the present to create the music that the audience is experiencing. The music itself comes from the ambient noise. And I think John Cage's interest in the present instead of the past or even the future, really, his interest in the present is what really drives that piece. He's also trying to show that silence isn't necessarily silence. So that's a really good description. It's really intelligent and it's really deep. But the audience experience of it, as I understand it, is a performer coming to the stage and like doing nothing, right? Yes. Yes. So the performer walks on stage puts the music maybe on the piano. The music itself says tacit one, tacit two, tacit three, tacit meaning don't play, essentially. And then you're just supposed to sit there for four minutes and 33 seconds and do nothing. And then at the end of that, you get up, bow, and leave. So, yes, it is an experience. And I've I've seen it performed several times. And I have yet to see someone do it without being incredibly serious. And everyone I've seen do it so far has walked out on stage and just sat really still, you know, and like tried not to move. And I think that part of the piece is that nothing you do is wrong. So you don't have to sit still. If you're sitting still because that's your take on it, great. But you don't have to be perfectly silent and perfectly still because the sound, there's sound going on. And I think the audience, <laughs> sometimes the audience just is weirded out by it. That pro, that amount of prolonged science or silence can be very unnerving. Right, right. Yeah, you'll, it's especially, yeah. I mean, sometimes it's, it's unnerving even when you know what's coming. I feel yeah. like we as humans are not really, we're not really good at sitting with not having like a lot of focus going on in our, in our ears, or maybe that's not the right take. Mm -hmm. Like I'm imagining if you go to a recital hall, you have an audience that's there that's sitting and watching the performer and there's certain Mm -hmm. expectations that you believe that you should uphold being an audience member and the performance of four minutes and 33 seconds is just daring you to keep up with those rules you know it's like well this is my piece like are are you gonna sit there like a good audience member and experience this and listen or what are you gonna do (laughs) I think something that's interesting about that idea is that I almost want to say that if someone stepped out outside of those norms of how you're supposed to behave, I think, I think John Cage would have still loved it. I, I, I don't think this is a piece you can screw up. That's the best part about it. 
it's a rare, <laughs> a rare moment in a musician's life and in an audience's life where anything goes. To give you a little sample of the effect that John Cage was wanting to bring his audience, I thought I'd play one of the movements here on the podcast. Now, of course, the effect will be a little different as your concert hall experience might be riding in a car, taking a walk, or cleaning the house. But I hope you're able to take a few moments of awareness here, regardless of where you are. Here is the 33-second movement of 4 minutes and 33 seconds. Now, imagine, if you will, the collective impact that purposeful ambient noise has when shared as a group experience, not just an individual one. (sighs) Musicians miss you. Let's go back to our interview. It's hard for humans to just sit there and experience that. And I think especially now, I was thinking about it actually, and Written in 1952, this is post-World War II, this is, you know, I like Ike era, this is, you know, a very different time period, and it's during a time period where everything was defined, gender norms were defined, societal norms were defined, and people didn't like you stepping outside of that, and so I find this concept that you mentioned about daring the audience to do something outside of what is expected. I think that's a good way to look at it for, for this piece. If you, if you put it into 1952 perspective, they were much better. I would, I would say at silence (laughs) because they didn't have constant sound going on all the time. They're not constantly checking their phones or watching YouTube or, listening to all the great things online. So Mm -hmm. I think it was maybe easier then. Now it takes on a different role because we are used to stepping outside of societal norms and really defined norms. But the silence is a struggle. So it like trades places. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the other philosophical point with this that I feel is good to mention is that John Cage seemed to constantly ask the question, what is the definition of music? Or what what makes music, I should say. Like, Mm. if we strip this away, is it still music? If we still strip this away, is it still music? To the point where he, in a way, said, if we strip music away, is it still music? Is that answer definitive in your mind? If four minutes and 33 seconds is, there's an argument of, is it music? Is it a performative gesture? Personally, I think it is music. I think if you want to call it music, you call it music. And this was his composition and therefore it's it's music. But at the same time, he wanted people to understand that music doesn't have to be held in this museum and looked at with the same purpose. So 
I like to look at it as music, but I like to have a very broad definition for the word, uh, for the word music. For me, music can be many things. And I think that concept is also related to his idea that if you take away, when he was talking about chance music, when you take away the process of composing because you're not actually deciding things, it frees up your brain for to experience it in a different way. So I think, you know, stripping away the music, well, it is music, stripping away the aural, you know, structure and composition, I think it allows the people to experience it in, in a different way because they aren't focusing on what we normally focus on. This concept of what music is really relates to the next part of his career in particular with his students at the new school who formed the New York version of Fluxus. I'm not familiar with that. Oh my God. Oh, yay. The okay, teach things. me. <laughs> it's so amazing. Okay. It was like this international approach to performance and art and everything creative, right? And they really stretched the boundaries of what you would call a performance or music or art or, or what, what have you. So like the members of Fluxus would write or compose a performance or a piece to be performed. And it would have the, some of the, I, I say weird, but I'm not saying it in a bad way because to me, weird is awesome, right? Mm -hmm. So it had some of the weirdest ideas and concepts to be performed. So Lamont Young, a composer uh, involved with Fluxus wrote a piece where the person is supposed to walk on stage and build a fire for the audience. <laughs> awesome. I mean, but if you think about it, it, like when I, when I see this, you know, when you think about it, you're like, Oh, that's, that's kind of weird. But when you're sitting around a campfire what do you hear? You hear the crackling and the different pitches of the the wood breaking and you hear the wind hitting the, the fire and that whoosh sometimes. I mean, it just like the sounds that can occur can really make you be in the present, you know, at the campfire. So why not have that same experience in a concert hall aside from, you know, fire marshal issues? Um, <laughs> but then another person involved in Fluxus was Yoko Ono. Right. Oh, and she she wrote a piece called Earth Peace. It was called Earth Peace. Earth Peace. And all the person does is come on stage and listen to the Earth turn. What? That's like amazing. Wow. Okay. So they were. Yeah. Okay. So I want to say, and you kind of explain this, but they were trying to really embrace the concept of experiencing the everyday, but in a format where you were kind of demanded that you pay attention and, and, and participate in kind of a really acute way. Sure. Yeah. I think, I think um, it was just the process of composing might've been more important even than the execution of it. So it's more like the concept of expanding what a performance is or what art is or what music is or, or, you know, expanding that. And then obviously like a performance of it. Yes, that that requires 
an audience to experience it in a different way than what they might expect. There was some kind of piece for a fluxus happening that called for someone to have like a bomb, which obviously you can't have a bomb. So it's more about the composition than the execution. Right. So, you know, so I think it's just the concepts and, and just allowing anything, if you say it's something to be something. I mean, I feel like all art has this question of like, when mm-hmm. is this not art? At what point is this not art? There's, you know, I'm thinking of like the urinals that were in the museum, you know, like at what point is that not art? You know, this question has been going on for so long. You know, is it art? Is it not? Is it music? Is it not? That I think the topic can almost get worn out. And I think people have just given up and they, and then it's like, fine. (laughs) It is what it is, you know? It's art, fine. (laughs) Fine. I love that. I love that because, you know, someone could essentially say that the argument about what is art and isn't is now art. (laughs) At the risk of philosophically collapsing in on ourselves, I'm going to end it there. Dr. Sophia Taggart, I learn so much from you every time we talk. Thank you so much. Our theme music is by Not Dead composer Thomas Barber. Check him out at thomasbarber.com. Web development support is provided by Tina at citybeautifuldesign.com. Keep Classical Weird is created and edited by me, Casey Bozell. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon. And be sure to tweet at me using the hashtag keepclassicalweird. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Stay safe and stay weird.